Pooh Bear here. Are you tired of getting your movie reviews from Doubtful Piglets and negative Eeyores and loud Tiggers and those smart-ass owls? Well, if so, tune in to the Feeding the Monster podcast feed on Thursdays to listen to Corey Morissette and the power of positive geeky. <laughs> Greetings, puny humans. This is Morbo, the newscaster. I am pleased, yet sticky, to tell you that you are listening to the power of positive geeking. I will destroy you! Why, hello there, and welcome to the Power of Positive Geeking. My name is Corey Morissette, and I want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, for anyone who's maybe heard this podcast before, you know, uh, in the past, we've been focusing uh, solely on movies that people like to geek out about, maybe things that are a little underappreciated. And this season, I thought I kind of wanted to expand that a little bit uh, and include music, uh, because I'm a very big uh, music fan, uh, especially uh, classic rock. And so uh, we did a podcast earlier this season with the one and only the beautiful, the talented Christy McGee, uh, where she talked about one of her favorite Metallica albums, Reload. And uh, today we're bringing you another uh, classic album. Uh, it's one of the uh, best-selling albums of all time, and it's the uh, classic uh, Back in Black by ACDC. And joining me on this episode is a fellow by the name of Kelly Rempel. Uh, Kelly is a, uh, a broadcaster here in Saskatchewan. Uh, he's a former uh, wrestling uh, promoter, did a little bit of work for WWE back in the 90s. He was also uh, Brett the Hitman Hart's uh, agent and has a lot of stories about Bret Hart. Actually, we get into that in the first half hour uh, of this show before we even talk about music. Um, Kelly's going to be coming back uh, quite a bit. He's got a laundry list of great albums that he wants to talk about, and he wants to talk about some wrestling stuff, too, so I thought that was amazing. Um, so I know this uh, show is a little bit on the longer side, so I'm not going to ramble on too much here, uh, but please enjoy uh, Kelly Rempel, The Silver Fox, and myself. Corey Morissette talking about uh, 1980s classic Back in Black. Welcome back to the Power of Positive Geeking. My name is Corey Morissette, and today uh, we're going to rock out a little bit. And uh, joining me today um, is a, uh, a legendary Saskatchewan broadcaster and uh, 80s rock uh, aficionado. His name is the Silver Fox, Kelly Ripple. How's it going today, Kelly? You know, that never gets old, Corey, the Silver Fox. I love it. Thank you very much for that. I mean, And it's getting more, there's getting to be um, less pepper and more salt all the time. <laughs> I, I can relate, my friend. I can relate. Now, uh, uh, Kelly and I uh, did some work together a few years back. Uh, he was commentating some uh, Taekwondo, I believe it was. Uh, That's back exactly in the right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, right. The Salus Taekwondo Academy in Regina did a Western Canadian tournament, and you drove from Weyburn that morning in a blizzard to uh, to get there just in time to to get it done. And I th they're still appreciative of that. You, you kind of pulled out all the stops to make that happen. I remember doing uh, like 30 or 40 kilometers down the highway there trying to get to Regina <laughs> in time to do the thing. But it, it turned out uh, fantastic. And uh, I've been following Kelly on Twitter ever since. And uh, uh, a lot of it, you're a really interesting fella, Kelly. And one of the things I never knew about you, but uh, you used to be an agent uh, for Brett the Hitman Hart. That's true. Yeah, we're going back a long ways. You know, it's funny. It's interesting that you and I are having this conversation today because I talked to Brett yesterday and I, we had a two and a half hour conversation 
and it came to the, I came to the conclusion about at about the 30 or 45 minute mark of that conversation that he's getting a little restless <laughs> over there in Calgary. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like that thing. Be careful what you wish for. You know, he's always told me over the years that, you know, one of the things he really regrets is that he's even now he's gone so much. You know, it's hard to turn down work because, of course, he's not wrestling anymore. So when he gets an opportunity to make some money or get out and, you know, meet people or do autograph sessions or whatever, you know, he's still in pretty good demand. Um, you know, he does wish that he wasn't gone so much. But this is maybe this pandemic <laughs> has taken that to a little bit of the extreme the other way. And now he's got cabin fever and he'd do anything to kind of get out and move around a bit. But with some of his health issues and whatnot over the years, I think he feels like, you know, with COVID, it's not worth taking any chances. So mm -hmm. he's happy to be uh, just, you know, kind of relaxing in Calgary, but you can only relax so much but you know we, we had a great time working together we've be, we've still maintained our friendship and our relationship over the years but yeah you know back in i it goes back to 1993 actually corey when i was the marketing and communications director um of the regina pats in the western hockey league and um i won't i mean we can do a deeper dive into some of this stuff another time if you want but um I was trying to figure we were our hockey team was so bad that year that I was trying to think of a way to take the focus off of how lousy our team was and put it more on like the marketing or the promotional aspect of it. Try to get people that wouldn't care whether you're in last place. They just want to go have a good time at the rink. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, Bret Hart was the WWF world heavyweight champion at the time. And he sort of replaced Hulk Hogan as being the man in pro wrestling. And I knew he lived, I was a big fan. I knew he lived in Calgary. And I thought, you know, I wonder what the chances are of getting him to come to a Pats game and sign autographs. And people thought I was nuts. They were saying like, well, like, why? Just ask yourself, Kelly, they would say, why, why would he come? Like, why would he come to Regina, Saskatchewan to do this for whatever you're going to be able to afford to pay him? It's just, why, why don't you focus your time on something that is an actual possibility? So my thinking, though, Corey, was like, well, why? Well, I have nothing to lose. You know, if the guy says no, he says no. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe I can get it to actually talk to him. Like, maybe I get a conversation with the guy. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? And uh, I left a message for him at his dad, Stu's house. And um, it spent me three days to get Stu Hart's phone number, only to realize that I could have looked it up in the yellow pages. <laughs> and uh, talked to him for hours. I mean, there's a guy, you talk about a guy that likes to talk. I thought I could talk your ear off. In fact, at one point, his wife, Helen, actually grabbed the phone away from Stu and got on the phone and said, you can cut him off anytime. Like, you, don't, you don't have to sit here all afternoon. And I said, Mrs. Hart, with all due respect, I could sit here for a month. <laughs> don't worry about me. Anyway, he passed the message on to Brett, who phoned me one night. And uh, I was just sitting by my, my phone watching a movie. And it was about... 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday and I actually considered not answering the phone because I thought uh, who's who's phoning me at 10 o'clock on a Sunday well he just got back from his dad's house at a Sunday dinner 
and uh, I did answer the phone and I couldn't believe when it was Brett the Hitman Hart on the other end of the call. I was just stunned. And uh, anyway, long story short, he agreed to come to do the game. And he said, you know, sometimes you don't do things because, you know, it, it pays great. You do it because you genuinely want to do it. it. Sounds like fun. So he came and we hit it off pretty much from the minute that I picked him up at the airport to uh, the Saturday night when we staggered back to the Hotel Saskatchewan at about 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> he just said, you know what, we got to do this again sometime. Uh, I had a blast. Next time you're in Calgary, give me a call. The odds of me actually being there are pretty slim because I'm on the road about 280 nights of the year. But by the off chance that, you know, you're there, um, give me a call. And so I swung and missed a couple of times. And then one time he called me and he said, listen, what are, I'm going to give you my calendar. Why don't you pick a night that you can come out to Calgary and just come stay with me? Maybe it's easier than when you happen to be there sort of thing. So my wife and I, she was my uh, fiance at the time, but we drove out to Calgary and stayed with Brett for three or four days. And uh, we've been really good friends ever since and um, did lots of promotional work with him, all kinds of all kinds of everything from autograph sessions to you know we did a great canadian bagel deal if you remember that franchise of course yeah um so many different things it's and actually indirectly with the, the that hockey game that we did uh in regina with the pats and warriors on october and i think it was october 15th not that that matters of 93 that's how the joe sackick theron flurry group kind of got the idea when they were trying to bring the Calgary hitmen uh, to Calgary, somebody saw an article that Rob Vanstone wrote about how the 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 game sold out and they were lined up. We couldn't we couldn't give tickets away that year. You have to understand, right? But we had six thousand there that night, and they were going. That's the guy we need. If we're going to bring junior hockey to Calgary, that's the guy we need. And they ended up naming the team after him and having pink and black jerseys. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, he to this day he uh, thanks me for that. But yeah, great relationship, lots of fun, and uh, maybe one day we can. If you want to sit listen to some stories for a few hours, I'm I'm pretty sure I could entertain your wrestling audience. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I'm th I'm thinking that's going to be a whole show. And I was sitting here thinking like maybe I should start a GoFundMe so I could try and get some uh, some uh, bankroll to get Bret Hart on the show talking about his favorite rock album because I think that'd be really interesting. You know, I don't know what that would be, but uh, if I were to take a guess, geez, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, it it, it could very. Um, he always surprises me with that kind of stuff. Like he might shock me and say Fleetwood Mac or something, but I would think that there might be a good chance. It's like, you know, Rolling Stones or I know he's a big Beatles fan. So it's probably, you know, he's not a country guy. I can tell you, if he didn't even mention country, he'd probably put a sharpshooter on it. Like he's not a country guy, even though he lives in Calgary. Um, he's a rock guy through and through, but uh, yeah, lots of fun. My claim to fame. Corey, my claim to fame <laughs> is standing outside the dressing room at the Molson Center watching Vince McMahon open up the door 
propped up, looked like he just drank a 40 of whiskey after Brett dropped him in the dressing room after the Montreal screw job. Oh, wow, you were there that night. He walked right past me. If you watch that Wrestling with Shadows documentary, mm -hmm. you can actually see me standing there in the dressing room watching Vince McMahon stagger out of there, wa wandering by me, not having a clue what day of the week it was. And... Uh, actually walked in the dressing room after and there's a there's a scene in that wrestling with shadows documentary where you, you can't see me on camera but you can hear my voice say to him you knocked out vince mcmahon with a punch <laughs> so that's my claim to fame every once in a while you know he sends me uh like he sent me one time a, uh, a text that said the gift that just keeps on giving. And then there was a little sound clip that somebody sent him of me saying, you knocked out Vince McMahon. With a punch. Oh God. I, I remember that scene. I watched that documentary like a couple times a year. I absolutely love it. And now really? that I know that I you, yeah. I didn't realize that you were a big wrestling guy. Oh, absolutely. Especially eighties wrestling. Uh, oh, I actually you know, just got a, a Bret Hart autograph that I just ordered online. I got a whole wall in my basement that I'm just covering with wrestling autographs from all the old 80s stars. I can get you whatever you need. You are I the usually, man, Kelly. I usually go up there a couple times a year and, and you know, for a visit or whatever. And uh, I'm usually armed with several pictures and uh, names. And uh, the only thing I have to be careful of sometimes is that I don't mix up the requests and the sticky notes because you don't want to say to bob thanks for everything but you know whatever and it ends up being on the on the wrong magazine from the wrong guy so right. <laughs> let me let let me know uh anytime i'll help you get whatever it is you need Absolutely. We're, we're going to have to do a wrestling show because, yeah, there's just so much uh, to talk about. I was actually uh, in Regina uh, the night after he won the title in Saskatoon. He had his very first title defense against the Berserker. Uh, so I was I, there. Yeah, that, that was an awesome night. But that's not what we're here to talk about, Kelly. We're here to talk about rock and roll because on your Twitter bio, it says sports broadcasters and 80s arena rock guy. So we're going to talk some 80s arena rock. And this past August, you actually did a, a poll, Battle of the 80s Arena Rock Bands. And you got some some big names here um you had aerosmith uh, paired up against van halen which van halen won uh a little surprising that's a really close matchup for me i don't know which way you lean in that matchup but i would lean aerosmith myself mm -hmm. person personally and not because i don't like van halen but you know if, if given the choice and you, you know you got to pick one i'm going to take aerosmith that was it seems to me you know and you've got the bracket in front of you i don't but there was someone there that i was pretty pretty confident i, I had a pretty good idea who was going to win there we go thank you for that <laughs> um that one i had no clue i mean it and, and i and if i'm not mistaken i think it was like 51 to 49 or something like it was it came right down to the wire you know mm -hmm. um the other one I think that was, I, I, I had no clue what was going to happen was the Guns N' Roses versus the Metallica one. I mean, you just, you just never know. I'm not entirely surprised Guns N' Roses won, though, because I think that, um, I think that probably for like, they're just more universally like a, a cross section of your average hundred people that might, you know, chime in on that. Mm -hmm. I think Guns N' Roses might appeal to a wider audience. And then the Bon Jovi Def Leppard one, that was a coin flip too. 
Yeah, um, uh, and I think I, it was. I, I'm definitely leaning Def Leppard on that one. I've seen him uh, three times now. I actually got to meet him uh, in Las Vegas, where they performed Hysteria in its entirety, and it was I just a that. great night. Yeah, I saw that. That's on your. Is that on your Twitter? It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I was thinking, I wonder where that show was. Yeah, that was in that's Vegas. That's one of those ones where I didn't know how that one was going to end. And the interesting thing about about that Bon Jovi versus Def Leppard match was every time I went to my phone, the lead changed. <laughs> it was like it, nobody was ever more than 51% uh, or 52% or whatever it was. And then every time I'd go back to my phone, whoever wasn't like – was just had the 48 or the 49 we had now had 50 point something like it was that one was another really close one too but yeah i had fun with that i was kind of stunned actually Corey. it's not like i got a million twitter um followers or anything like that but i was getting five and six hundred people seven hundred people that like when those things go viral right mm -hmm. that, that were voting on that thing it's amazing to me how much people still love 80s arena hard rock it's absolutely and uh my only complaint is that it's lacking some cinderella that's one of my favorite uh 80s bands well you know what i thought about that but who do you drop like if if you're trying to nail it down to 16 like like I, i'm going okay the, the 16 sort of biggest bands yeah and, and then you flirt with, okay, well, maybe you take Black Sabbath or Alice Cooper off, but I'm not sure Black Sabbath or Alice Cooper shouldn't be on there, you know? No, they, yeah, they absolutely should. The one I'm looking at on your list here is maybe the Scorpions, just because... Maybe. Uh, yeah, great band. Uh, I don't know if they were super huge in North America. And for that matter, neither is Cinderella. It's just a personal favorite of mine. But yeah, who do you drop? I mean, you have Aerosmith, Van Halen, Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, ACDC, The Scorps, uh, Black Sabbath, Kiss, uh, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, and then you got The Crew and, and Poison. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty solid list all around. Well, I figure if you're, if you're big enough back in the 80s to headline arena shows, you deserve to be on this list. Mm -hmm. And um, Cinderella, they were they they were phenomenal band. The only thing is, I do remember about them is that I I remember back um, being a kid getting a ticket to see them at, at Sask Place, um, and Slaughter opened for them mm -hmm. that night. And the the show, did, you know, there wasn't a huge crowd there, but it was just such an amazing show. It was just so good. And um, they played the Western Canadian leg of their tour, which kind of launched the tour, believe it or not. They actually started their headlining tour on that Heartbreak Station album mm -hmm. in Western Canada, and then they canceled the rest of the tour. Like, really? They, so they played six shows, and that was it. That was, they, they just couldn't, they didn't, it just didn't draw enough that they were willing. I guess the promoter must have thought, you know what? I think we're going to lose some money here. Let's um, just pack it in. I know the same thing happened with Warrant. I thought they were a pretty good band too. Not quite as good as the bands on this list. Yep. But I had front row, uh, or no, I'm sorry. Warrant, it was the, um, the same thing happened to them too, where they had a headlining tour that didn't last long because of ticket sales. But White Snake was another band that I almost. Might have been like Cinderella. I'm flirting with them, like, who do I drop to put them on? Mm -hmm. um, I remember I had front row center tickets to see White Snake at the Agrodome, but the show never happened because the 
they canceled the tour but it just wasn't enough sales so i never got to see that one either but but anyway i guess the moral of the story is um there are some bands out there that plain and simply are big enough to actually headline an arena tour and get three four thousand people every single night or whatever that number is that are willing to pay to come watch and then there's other bands that are big don't get me wrong but probably not playing in the headlining the arena league if you know what i mean yeah and a couple of these uh you're not talking arenas so much as you could be talking stadiums um you know metallica was selling out stadiums guns and roses uh selling out stadiums they sold out uh regina's new mosaic place a phenomenal concert but the band we're here to talk about today again selling out uh like football and baseball stadiums acdc who actually won your battle of the 80s arena rock bands and i gotta tell you i am not surprised acdc have been kings of the hill especially in Saskatchewan for decades it wasn't even close Corey it wasn't even close mm -hmm. it didn't matter who they were matched up against whether they were matched up against. I knew they were going to blow the Scorpions out I mean I knew that one wasn't even going to be close and I tried to get some decent matchups in that bracket so it wasn't you know there was some competitiveness there too in some of the brackets but they didn't have one they went up against Kiss in the second round they blew them out like 88 percent to 12 or something and i thought okay well you know maybe a monthly crew will give them a go they didn't, they didn't do any 30 better it was the same result they get to the final against guns and rose the same thing it was like 79 to 21 or something like that it's just and i think what i've come to the conclusion over the years Corey, and i'd be curious to get your thoughts on this the, the, the acdc it doesn't matter whether you're at a country music show and, you know, Thunderstruck before Good and Rich, or Big and Rich. See, I don't even know the names. I'm not a country <laughs> Before Big and Rich hit the stage at Craven, what song is playing on the, to get everybody fired up before they hit the stage? Thunderstruck, yeah. you know? You, you, you know, my daughter tells me that, that, you know, when you go to a, somebody's house and then somebody you know you're in the backyard having a barbecue although that well, hopefully we can get back to that wouldn't that be nice no kidding backyard barbecues remember those days yeah um anyway um and it's not uncommon for you know acdc to be playing for kids that are in their high school years now mm -hmm. um it, you know men women old young <laughs> um it doesn't matter where you go it doesn't matter what country you go to it doesn't matter what sort of cross-section of people nobody isn't going to tap the feet to you shut me all night long yeah it happen. you go to any dance club and when they start playing the, the songs that keep everybody on the dance floor at the end of the night at last call and you know acdc comes on People are coming from all over the bar to get on the dance floor. And yet they appeal also to the core diehard, hardcore rock fan that are probably a little bit too cool to like Poison Talk Dirty to me, but they love ACDC. Yeah. Like find somebody who doesn't really, honestly. You're, yeah. not, you're gonna have to look long and hard, or am I no, wrong? You're 
No, you are absolutely right. I got a uh, friend who's a wedding DJ, and he says that's the one band. No matter what wedding you're going to, you got to have some ACDC. It, it could be an all-country crowd, but you shook me all night long is going to get him on the dance floor. That's like the one band that bridges gaps. And I remember hearing a really interesting interview with some musicians actually talking about what's the formula, what makes ACDC work. And they said it's because the guitar, the drums always, you know, are a 4-4 drum beat, right? But the guitars are always pounding on three. So you always... It just naturally makes you move your head because it's three four three four and it's just and and that's the formula and it's worked forever for this band and even their new album power up which i think is a tremendous album it's that same formula and it still works and it just it makes you want to bop your head lyrics are a little naughtier uh, but are fun to sing along to right she told me to come but i was already there like there, everything about this and it's universal throughout the world right they're not just big in north america they're huge in south america europe uh they had a massive show in russia in the early 90s like uh just universally loved all over the world and that's rare australia is probably where they're at the absolute height of their their you know fandom Mm -hmm. like Australia, but you're right. I mean, that, their last, um, that River Plate show, they didn't Google it, you know, ACDC Live at River Plate when they opened with Rock and Roll Train, which I think is just an absolutely awesome song. Mm -hmm. um, I've never seen a crowd go crazy. That's got to be the most just absolute crazy I've ever seen a live audience watch a concert. And, um, and these are guys out there at, at 60 years old. Yeah. So kids moshing at a, you know, a Green Day concert back in 1995. We're talking about people our age, for God's sake. And uh, <laughs> mind you, the beauty of it, it's not just those people, although that's probably the, the, the core demo, but you got people with their 10-year-old or their 9-year-old daughter on their shoulders. Right. And, and yeah. I, you know, in fairness, though, Corey, I think we could say that about a lot of the bands from the 80s. You know, that's the charm and the beauty of um, of that whole uh, 80s rock. You know, I, I remember not to get too sidetracked here, but I can remember being almost, you know, depressed in the early 90s because it's like. After, you know, Dr. Feelgood came out in, you know, New Jersey and Hysteria and Open Up and Say Aw and Appetite for Destruction. And there was just some, there was a run of two or three years there where it's just amazing stuff. And then it just died. That was it. It's like, you know, just like a cork. Mm -hmm. it's like you couldn't give, I remember Nikki Six talking in, in the dirt. They literally couldn't give tickets away in the in the early 90s to come to shows they're in 10,000 seat buildings and they had 700 people show up yeah uh, and there were the, the the radio station was like you know we, we got free tickets but people wouldn't even like go to the radio station to pick up free tickets to go see motley crew are you kidding me <laughs> that, that's just how that whole thing just died and yet here we are in 2000 and, and it kind of started in almost about 2000. There's about a decade there where people just didn't, for whatever reason, Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Soundgarden or whatever, um, Alice in Chains, you know, people started changing the way that they, you know, in Canada, there was the tragically hip and it just that more alternative style rock, I guess. Uh, I don't get it myself, but mm -hmm. it just appealed to more people, I suppose. And, um, 
people stopped listening to the classic stuff and now like it's back and more popular than it's ever been that now you know people are more into it now than ever but um i agree with you i think sometimes simplicity is the best formula acds has four chords they change the pattern of the chords but it's still fairly like you said it's fairly predictable but you know, again, Greg Malinsky was one of the great technical guitar players of all time, but does anybody remember any of his songs? Yep. But, but uh, 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 <laughs> people lose their minds. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> No, it, it absolutely is. And I remember uh, listening to an interview with Chris Slade, who uh, did some drumming for ACDC uh, on the uh, Razor's Edge album. Yeah. And he actually, uh, on the Rock or Bust uh, tour, he was with them as well, uh, saying that that first tour with ACDC, when he had to do a Let There Be Rock, like that was oh. like eight or nine minute song. And he's got to keep that pattern up. And that's a fast drum pattern, right? Boom, choom, boom, choom, boom, choom. That yeah. the other bands on the bill were like taking bets when he was going to screw up. Because unless you're Phil Rudd, you know, you can't hold that for eight or nine minutes but phil rudd just makes it effortless every member of this band does their job so well cliff williams they say you know his bass parts are, are stupid easy right but that's the engine that that the rhythm section that that drives the song that then malcolm could lay his layer on top with his rhythm guitar and then you got uh you know one of the best guitar players of all time in angus young right uh, just uh fiddling around and having fun and doing those solos with that amazing voice uh, of brian johnson everything about acdc works and everything about that lineup uh started uh in 1980 with back in black which is the album we're actually here to talk about kelly 26 minutes into the show we're going to start talking about back in black uh the big breakout album of ACDC uh, released July 25th, 1980, one of the best selling albums of all time. Over 50 million copies sold. Just celebrated its 40th anniversary here uh, not that long ago. The first album with Brian Johnson. Um, Kelly, where were you when you first heard Back in Black? I had a friend of mine, his name was Jason Pitzel. And uh, I was about nine years old. And it was a little bit, it, it had already been out. And I was a big Kiss guy. I love Kiss. You know, I had the Destroyer and a friend of mine who lived two doors down from me, his sister, Charmaine, you know, she was about 16 or 17 years old. And so she had Love Gun and, you know, Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over and Alive. And I was a Kiss guy. Well, this friend of mine, Jason, you know, he says, you know, Kiss is great and everything, but you got to, you got to hear this band. And again, I'm like nine, eight or nine, grade three, I think I was. So I must have been eight. And uh, he says to me, he says, you got to come over and you got to hear this. So I rode my bike over to his house and he puts the, uh, now in fair, he, he started with side two. But he puts the record on the turntable and you hear this. And then all of a sudden the rip breaks in and I'm going, now ah, that's pretty good. I couldn't deny it. And we, we listened to the whole album over and over and over again at his house. And that's when I, you know, I realized that even at, even at a young age, like I know it sounds ridiculous to think you could be in grade three or four, or think about these kinds of things. But I'm thinking, you know, every one of these songs is good. Like, you know, you can leave the record on and you can just turn it. Like, I remember I had The Elder, mm -hmm. I guess, when I was a kid, but there was only two good songs on the record. I Even I couldn't hang in there for the whole the whole thing. You know what, Paul um, Stanley couldn't either. That, he hates that album. <laughs> well, it's, 
yeah, I mean, oh God, but <laughs> but in fairness, it was a it was it was a different. Um, it was a different project. It wasn't intended to be a great rock album. It was something totally different. But, but the point is, is that I even at that age, I I recognized that okay, Dynasty has two or three pretty good songs on it, three or four maybe. Um, but you know, I'm gonna move over these two or three and kind of put the needle back on. You know, when the songs start getting good again, <laughs> the Elder had like literally two on the whole album. So in my Kiss repertoire um destroyer was kind of like the one album where i could listen to it from the front to the back and every song was good well back in black was the exact same it was just heavier and it was just raspier and growlier and just a little bit more intense and um there was just something very very cool about it and we used to have you know i don't know if you did this when you were a kid but you'd have like the tennis rackets and you'd you'd air band and play oh, yeah. <laughs> use it as a guitar and yeah it was it was pretty pretty awesome stuff now where the band was uh, at this point in their career is kind of interesting because uh, the year prior they had released highway to hell which uh their first album with uh mutt lang who would be a, a huge producer worked with brian adams uh, did def leppard's best work um highway to hell was a great album didn't really break through sales wise until after bon scott's death um which happened uh, shortly thereafter uh so here you have acdc in mourning having to find a new lead singer because they promised Bon Scott's father that they would continue on and not let his music die with them type thing. Uh, so they got Brian Johnson. They went off uh, to the Bahamas of all places with Mutt Lang. And I wanted to really curious to get your take on this because Mutt Lang is a very methodical producer. He'll make guys do 40, 50 takes of just the simplest things to get the exact sound he wants, which is not the young brothers mentality, right? They want to get in there. They just want to slap it down and, and get it out. Like the albums they produce with george young would take weeks not months uh yeah. and back in black uh, it only really took like a month month and a half which is rare for uh, a mutt lang production um but what are your thoughts on mutt lang and the work he did with acdc well here's how i would answer your question so sometimes you need to you know you need to ask yourself What's really important? Is it important that the diehard core fanatical rabid audience are satisfied? Or do we want to maybe take a chance that maybe we'll unsatisfy that group if it means we're going to, you know, acquire 20 times the number of fans and actually start making a little bit of money in this business? So you know, Dirty Deeds, Let There Be Rock, Power Age, which I still think is their most underrated album. Absolutely. Th those albums were were great. They're, they were great. They were, there's just something grainy. The, the charm of it, it's kind of like the way I feel about Def Leppard, High and Dry, or, or, you know, Too Fast for Love by Motley Crue or something, you know, like sometimes mm -hmm. the ones that, that, that have the least amount of production in their own way, that's the charm of the record is that there, there's no, there, there's no polish on the edges, you know, it's just yeah. straightforward. It almost sounds like a demo, quite frankly. And, and so, but when they got Mutt Lang to do Highway to Hell, I think it was on a recommendation from somebody that said, look, if you guys want to break it internationally, and you want to become more than just sort of like the rush in Cleveland or something. You want to be more than just got your pockets of fans that love you, but nobody else frankly knows who the hell you are. You need to get somebody that's going to help you 
to do better production and give you ideas to to write catchier songs. And and um, and they you know they probably were hungry at that time. I'm <laughs> and tired of eating macaroni and cheese and wanted to cut into a steak every once in a while <laughs> and decided that, you know, let's, let's, let's do it. I think the charm of what Mutt Lang did though, was he didn't, he didn't try to turn them into something that they weren't. He just wanted them to be better and push them to be better. So Highway to Hell is my second favorite ACDC album. I thought it was just absolutely unbelievable. Um, it was just awesome the way that, that you know, uh, they were able to keep the edginess of like the, the previous albums. But from a production standpoint, I mean, it was a hundred times better. I mean, let's be honest. Just like when he did, you know, Def Leppard's records, you know, you can say what you want. And yeah, I agree. You know, some of their previous albums were a little bit more edgy, but Pyromania was a different world of production and better song value. I mean, let's call it what it is. And that's what he did with Highway to Hell. And then the really interesting part is that, and I'm sure you're going to want to talk, do a little bit deeper dive into this, but you lose your singer who's kind of the balls of your, your, your band Malcolm Young's had said it himself, you know, Angus and, and, and he were kind of the driving force musically, but Bond's lyrics and his just swagger and his cockiness and his attitude combined with Angus's, you know, theatrics and, you know, lunatic behavior in that schoolboy outfit. But, the, you know, Bond was really the guy that people could sort of identify with, like your your average beer drinking guy out in the audience. It's a little more harder to 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 relate to Angus Young. I mean, you love him because he's crazy, but uh, you know you probably don't have much in common with him. But Bond Scott could be the guy, your cousin. He could be your crazy next door neighbor that you sit out on the deck and have a beer with, kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And um, when you lose that. The, the odds of a band being able to recover from that and actually be bigger than ever is like your chance like being struck by lightning in yeah. the music business. And somehow, Robert Muttland was able to take a guy who is an unknown, completely new to, I mean, you know, Jordy was maybe big in their hometown, but that's yeah. about it. <laughs> and he takes this guy who's got a completely different sound, a completely different style, a completely different character and personality and made it work for them just by a few little tweaks here and there in their recording studio. Um, he, they kept all the edge. They kept all the, the again, that classic ACDC sound, but there he was able to somehow make it work. And it's just, I'm, I'm blown away by it. I mean, when you really stop and think about what they were able to do with that back in black album on the heels of, of, of highway to hell, which finally got them into kind of mainstream rock. If that, if that's the right word. I mean, it's still only sold 500,000 copies, but at least it's a gold record. I mean, they weren't even close to that before the Montland came along. Right. You lose your singer and you get 20 times bigger. It's, it's just almost incomprehensible.
and, and without like a number one hit or, or a huge video or anything it was all kind of word of mouth because uh, they weren't even getting a ton of radio play uh, at the start on back in black uh, my favorite uh, acdc story and you probably know this but I'll, I'll relate it for the viewers or for the listeners but um bon scott actually kind of endorsed brian johnson at one point uh, bon was telling the boys in the band that he was at a pub one night and he saw this yeah. band jordy he said and they got this crazy singer he was like little richard he was thrashing around and screaming at the top of his lungs and he was on the floor and he was flopping around like a dying fish and at the end they hauled him away on a gurney it was the best rock performance i'd ever seen it turns out brian johns was having appendicitis attack and was in a lot of pain and was taken out to go to the hospital he was a bedic taken out so uh kind of endorsed by bond scott a little bit and, uh, and the young boys never forgot that. My all-time favorite ACDC story. Uh, but let's get into the album now, Kelly. So uh, we have, like I said, Bon Scott first, or sorry, uh, Brian Johnson, uh, first album with the band, writing lyrics, a uh, lot of pressure uh, coming into that situation. The first track on Black and Black, uh, Hell's Bell. So we start off with that, that classic bell sound, which they actually had to get a bell made because every time they went to get a church bell sound and record it, all they heard was like, you know, pigeons flapping about. So they actually had to make their own bell uh, to get that that classic sound but what a great way to kick off the album kelly uh, your thoughts on hell's bells yeah i i mean what what can you really say about it it's it's um it, it's sort of like the ultimate tribute to bond scott that on track one on side one track one of the new record that is dedicated to him i'm just trying to Imagine being, you know, 17 or 18 or 19 years old at that time and the anticipation of, you know, because there had to have been some skepticism from the fans too. Like, well, we don't want another singer. Like, we don't, we don't, well, I imagine people kind of felt that way a little bit when David Lee Roth left Van Halen. The difference is, is they knew what Sammy Hager sounded like. So I'm trying to imagine myself being in my late teens and I'm sitting there and I, I'm nervous, you know, and I take my record out of the jacket and I put it on the turntable and I put the needle on. And the first thing I hear is, oh, <laughs> and then, the, and then that, just that cool little riff that comes underneath from, from, from Angus Young and it's slow, it's methodical. And like so many other ACDC songs, it sort of, it builds, it builds, it builds, it builds, and then boom, you know? And, um, you know, you talk about these funny stories. I, I, I saw an interview with Brian Johnson recently where he said that it's the num it's the first track on the album, but it was one of the songs that came a little bit later in terms of the tunes that they were writing. Mm -hmm. And he was having breakfast on a cliff in the Bahamas overlooking the ocean with Mutt Lang and he was really stressed out and Mutt Lang said to him he said what's wrong right like you're not yourself like what's going on he says I, I've run out of ideas I don't have any more ideas I mean I'm writing stuff down and it's the shits and he's like well you know so they're having this conversation and all of a sudden there's these big black clouds start moving in towards where they're eating and then the floodgates open and it just starts to pour like it's absolutely pouring he said you couldn't even see now you can't see the ocean it's just outside these windows it's just white and he turns to uh to robert mutt lang as they're sitting there and he says he kind of looks up up at the sky and he says man there's rolling thunder there's pouring rain good god and then there's this pause and he says 
it's coming on like a hurricane, for Christ's sake, you know? <laughs> and Mutt Lang said, what did you just say? He says, well, it's coming on like a hurricane. It's like, well, he goes, I know, but before that, you said it's rolling. It goes on. Uh. So anyway, these two guys write this down on a napkin. He goes, there you go. There's the start of your next song. <laughs> Brian Johnson is like, okay. So he like, isn't that something else? <laughs> and you got Hell's Bells, my friends. Yeah, well, one of the classic ACDC tracks. I think any uh, kid who's ever picked up a guitar and, and wanted to play rock and roll uh, is taught like that intro to Hell's Bells, maybe right off the hop. It's easy enough to do, and, and you feel like a rock and roller just playing that. Very simple riff, but but classic. And it has. Slow, methodical, and a lot of times the tenets in back in those days was the first song on the first album has to be really heavy and there has to, you kind of have to hit them right between the eyes. This is one of the kind of the more slower paced songs on the record, but really in looking back, it's the perfect song to kick the album off. Yeah. And uh, ACDC is one of those bands that whatever tour they go on, they're playing the first track uh, off the new album. To, to kick things off. So in 1980, they would have been leading off with Hell's Bells. Now it's a little later in the set. And of course, the big bell uh, lowers down and Brian Johnson takes a run at it and grabs the uh, the rope, right? And he's swinging from it as the gong is going. And uh, just a, a classic concert moment that he still says, I can't believe Malcolm talked me into that. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of scary. Uh, sometimes the bill's up there quite a bit and here he is swinging from it. And <laughs> I liked on the Razor's Edge tour where he took the sledgehammer to it. And while the at the end of the, show he's grabbing the sledgehammer and you could tell like brian's not a big guy he's only about five foot six <laughs> and the sledgehammer was almost as big as him but be damned if he didn't have that thing in his hand and he'd pick it up and drop it on that bell and boom every time it was just great <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like you said, an absolutely perfect way to kick off um, Back in Black was Hell's Bells. Uh, track number two, um, one of their absolute best, uh, just high energy rock tracks, Shoot to Thrill. Um, also, you know, it was really uh, brought back into prominence uh, thanks to the Iron Man movies. Uh, it was very prominent in there. So it uh, kind of became a hit all over again. But uh, Shoot to Thrill, uh, for me, I put it in my top five ACDC songs of all time. You know, I love songs where well I guess Hell's Bells is a little bit like this too but the, you know in, in literally you're, you're at a concert and as soon as you hear the first literally the first second of the song or the first like riff you know boom you know exactly what's coming and I've seen ACDC I think five times and every time I've ever seen them as soon as the, the crowd hears that it's just and people are going crazy because they know shoot the thrills coming you know it's it's it, it's just such a great catchy song you know um that opening like so many of their tunes they've kind of mastered the art of opening up with that that guitar sound that you know a little bit of drums a little bit of drums a little bit of guitar get more get more and it morphs into this full-on just assault you know, of like the drums and bass and the, the all the guitars sort of kick in at the same time. And it just, it gives you goosebumps. It's like it sends shivers down your spine. It's, um, and then, you know, and it was also fun to listen to Brian Johnson. You know, he's quite the ladies man in this song, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> 
You know, and uh, some people thought maybe a little uh, a little nod to Bon Scott, too, because uh, he died from acute alcohol poisoning. But there's been rumors that he was taking a bunch of uh, pills at that point, too. And, of course, you have the lyrics, uh, uh, you know, shoot the thrill, pay to kill. Uh, too many women got too many pills. You know, was that uh, alluded? You know, was that directed towards Bon Scott? He denies it. But uh, an interesting lyric because you never really heard ACDC singing about that kind of stuff before right it was always just about booze uh and you know here here's a, a little nod towards uh, pill taking well and, and i there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there guys like chris jericho yeah uh boy he's turned into an interesting cat over the years oh my goodness no i give him all the credit in the world for being a great innovator but man some of his political views in that lately drive me crazy but he's got this conspiracy theory jericho does that that there's no way that bond scott didn't write shoot the throw yeah well, how do you know, Chris? Well, you know, he would never, if, and then he, you know, he talks about like, bon, that's what Bon Scott would say, and he'd read the lyrics and on his own podcast, and he's not buying it. But I don't know. Al, Malcolm, Angus, and Brian all claim that that Bon Scott did not write any of the lyrics. They felt that it would be almost sacrilege to like take his lyrics and use them if he's not singing on it. So I'd take the band's word for it. Yep, uh, I'm with you 100%. And there's a couple tracks where Bon Scott just kind of laid down some early uh, drums uh, on the demos, uh, and that's really about it. Uh, and, but we'll get to those when we reach those. So Shoot to Throw was number two. Number three, we have What Do You Do for Money, Honey? Uh, your thoughts on this one, Kelly? It's my favorite deep cut of any ACDC record. I absolutely love this song. This, this tune would be in my top two or three on this record. Um, not exactly one that, you know, um, Hey mom, have you ever heard this song? Dan, dan. No, no, haven't heard that one. Um, so it's not, um, it's not one of their most well-known songs. It would be one of those ones that the diehards would love to hear at the show, but most of the other people would love to hear I don't know this one. Even though, Corey, you could argue back and want to make my have a deep cut because when you've sold 50 million albums, chances are, you know, people know all the songs. But as far as deep cuts go, I I don't know what else I can say. I, I absolutely love it. I've always wondered, though, Corey, is this song about a prostitute or a gold digger? Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because when you think back on the lyrics, it kind of fits for either. I always kind of thought prostitute, but uh, it would also work for gold digger, too. Yeah, and that's kind of been uh, ACDC fans have wondered for years. Like, I wonder, like, who is is it a story about? Like, which is it about? There's the line lyric in there. He says, um, "Or are you digging for gold?" Maybe that's maybe that's what kind of makes people think that. But uh, I was thought for years it was a it was a song about a prostitute too. But anyway, um, great great song. Such a trashy, saucy, you know, song with you know lyrics and. The thing I love about this song too, Corey, is we, when you think about, um, like, say the song before I shoot the thrill. There's really no, there's not a lot of backup um, lyrics on that one. But when you come into, what do you do for money, honey? When 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 Malcolm and Cliff come over the top and join Brian in the chorus, mm-hmm. it's just like so. It so makes it so thick. You know, it's just such a powerful backup vocal. Um, 
Love it. And here's another uh, reason you get Mutt Lang to produce your record because uh, very accomplished singer as well. And there's a lot of Mutt Lang in the uh, the backing vocals of both Hell, uh, Highway to Hell, uh, and Back in Black. And uh, what do you do for money, honey? You could hear a lot of Mutt Lang uh, singing on that one as well. Just kind of helps elevate uh, the background vocals of uh, Malcolm Young and Cliff Williams. Uh, song number four is "Given the Dog a Bone." Not a lot of. Uh, I wonder uh, what this song is about. Exactly right. Uh, ACDC loves their double entendres. They love their their raunchy lyrics. And, and here's another one, but just a great classic ACDC beat and and fun lyrics. Uh, Give them the dog a bone. I put up there with "What do you do for money, honey?" Uh, like you said, you can't really call them deep cuts because they're on back and black. But uh, for the songs that weren't released as singles, um, also uh, you know I would put as like an A uh, or neighboring on A plus kind of territory. What do you think? Oh, 100%. I love this song too. Love it. Um, if this isn't the most obvious sexual innuendo in the history of rock and roll, as far as the lyrics go, like find me the song that would, that would top this one. She's blowing me crazy till my ammunition runs dry. Yeah, she's using her head again. Yeah. <laughs> Spinal tap couldn't, couldn't be any better. I mean, but it's, again, we talked about it. We're going to probably talk about it throughout the, the rest of the songs, but there's so many great ACDC songs with, that start with that. And then all of a sudden it just builds, 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 builds. And then you can just all of a sudden, you know, it just hits you between the eyes with the concussion of that everything coming together. Mm -hmm. after, I always thought this would be a great song for a hockey team to come out on the ice to. You know, it builds and builds and builds. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your river, river, whatever. And then, boom. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it kind of hits in full force. I, I just, it's just, again, formula. Simple, easy. It's not complicated, but this band masters that in this song. I think maybe Junkyard Dog missed an opportunity of not having this as his entrance music. <laughs> yeah, he went with another one, Bites the Dust. I think this one would have been far more appropriate. I agree. I agree. Uh, at number five, um, you, you mentioned Chris Jericho and his kind of definition of a perfect album is A minus or better. Um, this would kind of be my A minus song, I think. Uh, let me put my loving to you again. Not, not a lot of gray area there. Uh, of what they're talking about um but out of all the tracks on back in black probably my least favorite and it's still a great track it's the only one so i had a, a cassette tape when i was a kid remember those days you know you'd have oh, yeah. an album where you'd have a and you'd take the best songs and you'd put them on there and you'd leave the ones that you were kind of eh, and you wouldn't put them on there so if a record was a good record and you could get three or four songs off of one album. It was a good record. Mm -hmm. If it made your all-star tape, right? Yeah. It's the only song from Back in Black that didn't make it onto that tape. I just, I don't even think I'd give it an A minus, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, um, now compared to what, guys are listening to nowadays it would probably be an a mm -hmm. but when you compare it to the others for me when you compare it to the other songs on this album it's kind of like it, it should have been on a different album kind of thing it's like it, it's were they sitting around going like okay guys we need one more song and we got 20 minutes what, what can we come up with well hang on a minute let me cut your cake with my knife <laughs> 
Yeah, it's good enough. It's good enough. Just leave it on there. Um, silliest lyric in the history of the band, but nah, I don't care for it. Actually, this was one of two songs, I think, that Bon Scott actually laid the drumming tracks down. Did he not? Yes, uh, it was this one and uh, Have a Drink on Me, I believe, was the other one. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, a little slower groove. Uh, I think maybe feels a little bit more at home on uh, for those about to rock uh, than, than on Back in Black. But uh, I think I liked it maybe just a little bit better than you. But uh, uh, let me put my love in you is the final song on side A. Uh, I'm talking vinyl because I, I listen to this album uh, on vinyl all the time. Uh, side two now, uh, we, we talked about the kickoff on side one with Tells Bells. Now you've got Back in Black and you've got that classic uh, hi-hat intro, right? Yeah. Then he opens it up on the fourth one, just that little and then into the guitar right and just a yep. fantastic opening whenever i hear that like i'm getting excited because i know back and black is coming yes. uh just an absolute classic in the acdc canon uh where do you rank this one uh on the album and uh, in your all-time favorite acdc songs well it would definitely be in my top 10 all-time favorite acdc songs for sure um I would say it's probably, I would say that it's probably in the top, I'd say it's probably my second or third favorite song on this album. Um, I, I really like it. Um, you're right, those little opening sort of like grinding little chunks of, you know, it's, it's like you say, there's anticipation before it, before it ever even hits. Um, probably the catchiest riff in maybe rock and roll history you could make that argument mm -hmm. you know like you know i don't know smoke on the water I, there's a, there's there's other little songs that you think about over the years where you know it's undeniable that anybody that paid two dollars and fifty cents for a guitar lesson probably wanted to learn um this one would have to be right up there at the very very top in fact i've actually seen online where catchiest rock and roll riffs ever and uh you know this one is always 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 in the in the top 10 always never it's never not um it kind of reminds me of that old saying mind you the band itself could you could say this about anything that they did but simple is just sometimes better you know it, this this is just so simple but yet it's so good and i always getting back to my game Bay malmstein comment earlier you know, you can try to impress me. I'm talking about me personally, not mm -hmm. other people might feel differently. I'm not really that impressed with 20-minute guitar solos and, you know, guys kind of getting off on themselves by, you know, how many, you know, miles an hour they can run their fingers up and down the guitar. And, you know, uh, Eddie Van Halen, great guitar player, absolutely great guitar player. But Van Halen's best stuff wasn't do little, 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 little. It was, you know, running with the devil or Panama, you know, like g give me the simple stuff. I'm, I'm not interested in listening to these technical Steve Vai. I'm, you know, what great song did Steve Vai ever write? Like, honestly, can you think of five? I can't think of two. Like, but you give me dun, 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 like it doesn't get any simpler than that but it doesn't get any better than that either <laughs> right no, yeah you're absolutely right i, I agree uh, wholeheartedly um I, I found this one interesting because uh malcolm went to brian johnson who wrote the lyrics for this album and said uh we want you to write you know 
something for Bond. It can't be morbid. It has to be more of a celebration. But no pressure, right? Like, go immortalize yeah. our former yeah. lead singer. And he, he just wrote a bunch of what Brian called mumbo jumbles, stuff like nine lives, cat's eyes, abusing every one of them and running wild. And and the young brothers are like, yeah, that's perfect. Let's run with that. And so that, that became Back in Black. And it's one of these all-time classic songs that uh, that populate this entire album. It would um, probably be the easiest song they ever did if you were determined. Now, I would call it sacrilege, but if you were determined that you had to turn an ACDC song into a rap song, this would be the easiest one to do. Because it's kind of got that, you know, that sort of that rhythm and that slow pattern that, you know, you could see a, you know, um, a rapper, he could somehow turn it in and without completely changing it and making it something that it's just nothing like what it's supposed to be, you could do it relatively easily. Um, it's, it, it, and I can't believe I'm saying that because I hate rap music, but it does kind of have that sort of that, that feel to it. Um, the, the other thing that I really uh, thought was interesting about when they were, when they were talking about um, this album, and maybe, maybe this is something we should have saved for the end, but we were talking about back in black is the, the, their, the song selection to call the album back in black. So, I found it really fascinating that one of the things that they got into a major, major argument with Atlantic Records about the album cover, because the, the, the Atlantic Records said they refused to put out a black album cover. They, they said that there's absolutely no way that that's going to sell. I mean, people are just going to walk right by it. They're not even going to look at it. And Malcolm and Angus are going, no, that's the, you've done it exactly opposite. You put an album on the front of the of the record, Sam the Record Man, and it's got nothing on it, it's just black. Everybody's gonna go over it. That's the point. Is they're gonna it's there it's it's dark, it's you know, this mysterious. People are gonna have to go look at it to see what it is, and we just want the etching to to be A C D C back in black. We don't we want exactly the opposite of what you want. We don't want something colorful. That's the charm of the whole concept, the whole idea in honor of our friend. It's a tribute to our to our dead singer. That's what we're doing. Well, they went back and forth on this for weeks. And I read that Angus has said that it was more exhausting and more time consuming and took more energy to fight with the record company over the back back in black album cover than it was to write the music it was just it got to the point where they were ready to walk away from it out of stubbornness they're not changing their mind so they compromised that whatever you want on the inside you can do whatever you want if you want to have you know purple polka dots with pink stripes go ahead but the album cover is black period and uh I thought that's kind of a cool story. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah, it, it meant something to them. Immortalizing their, their friend and their former lead singer. And they hated their record company. I remember the big fight over, you know, lack of push on, like, Dirty Deeds. And the response to that was Let There Be Rock, which, you know, took a quantum leap forward, I think, in, in their songwriting and, and that kind of thing. And this is another kind of quantum leap forward uh, for ACDC. But now, Kelly, we, we've come to the, the hit single of Back yeah. in Black, if you will. It was my favorite song since I first heard it it's still my favorite acdc song it's you shook me all night long i know all the diehards will say uh i never have to hear that song again it's overplayed but that's the song that i think bridges gaps you talked about hating country nobody hates country more than i do but all my country bumpkin uh, friends they would still pop on you shook me all night long and love it 
Isn't it interesting, eh? If if you ask a diehard fanatical Kiss fan if "Rock and Roll All Night" is your favorite song, they'll all say no, no, it isn't. It wouldn't even be in my top fifty. If you ask a fanatical Def Leppard fan, is "Pour Some Sugar on Me" your favorite? They're all going to say no, not even close. If you ask the, the just the stark raving lunatic. ACDC fans, where does You Shut Me All Night Long rank in your top 10? Universally, they'll probably all tell you that it wouldn't. But there's something fun and cool, even for us diehard fans that aren't, you know, don't think it's the greatest song they ever wrote. But it is fun to be in a dance. They play ACDC, and the dance floor is just packed with people, whereas if you put what you do for money, honey, on there, maybe not so much, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just it's just so cool um you know really quick story i went to a poison concert they were, they were uh, with death leopard and tesla i saw it at the saddle dome two years ago and at the end of poison set brett michaels is standing up over top of the crowd and they just end with nothing but a good time and the place is in a frenzy and he says uh he says good night and then he walks away from the microphone and he comes back to the microphone and he says some i can't remember his name he says hey john or whatever his name was in the sound booth he just give us a little acdc to take us home will you and so they cranked you shook me all night long in the in the arena while the they and so now all the the, the crew were coming on they're striking the set and everything and mm-hmm. taking everything down and Brett is walking around high five and all the fans in the front where they're all like uh, down in front of the stage. And when the chorus of You Shook Me All Night Long came on, he puts his arm in the air as if to sort of signal the crowd to sing. And 15,000 people in the sound room started singing You Shook Me All Night Long. And it was just vibrating with excitement and energy. It was, I'll never forget it. Just something really simple, something easy. But who doesn't know that? Yeah. You know, one person, Corey, that doesn't know that song. I really don't. And you were talking earlier about the River Plate show, which if you can get it on DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, it's a phenomenal show. But when they start playing You Shook Me, that place erupts and everybody is bouncing along with the beat. Yeah. You got like 30,000 people just and they're all just a sea of heads just bouncing up and down and they're all singing along yep. to the riff. And it's yep. just amazing. Awesome. It, it's never missed uh, their set list, I think, since, and I don't think it ever will. That's still uh, one of my favorite all-time songs. Next, we have Have a Drink on Me, which is very much uh, kind of a Bon Scott song. Uh, he, he played drums on the demo, as we talked about. Um, maybe a little bit of a tribute to Bon on here as well? I don't think there's any question about it, that the lyrics for this song were probably written with him in mind. Absolutely, 100%. Um this this is probably you know how I said my my if there is such thing as a deep cut, I kind of rotate between money honey giving the dog a bone and this one. Um, depending on the day, I love them all the same. You know this is this is just such a great this is just such a great tune. Um, it's kind of one of those songs where I nah, maybe you can't call it a deep cut because it's like so many people know it, but it's not. It's one of those ones. I, I like I said, I've seen ACDC on five tours. I think I've heard it live once, so it's not an automatic that they're going to play this one yet. Pretty much everybody that I know knows it. My favorite part of this song is the bridge. You know, you get your, you get your, 
your verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Then they come back out of Angus's solo with the, the bridge. And um, I, I just, it, it, it just sends shivers up and down my spine every, every single time I hear that. It's just, it's so, it, it, again, you know, it starts off quick. Then it kind of gets a little bit slower. And then right during the bridge, it builds, it builds, it builds, it builds, it builds. And then, boom, Brian Johnson just comes in with those raspy vocals and just just makes such a, an impact. Um, you know, we could talk about it over and over and over again, but it's the simplicity of this stuff that makes it so good. There's, there's nothing fancy about this song. There really isn't. I mean, there's not, you can't sit there and say, oh my goodness, you know, what an incredible, um, you know, unusual way of tying in, you know, the, the, the chorus and the lyrics and, oh my God, these are, the, you know, th these are lyrics that must have been sent from angels in heaven. It's like, <laughs> no, it's about getting shit faced drunk at the bar and picking up checks. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, but it's, uh, I don't know. What do you think? I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like uh, th this is the one you put on when you're having a beer with your buddies, right? And because um, it feels like they're they're kind of raising their glass uh, yeah. to, to to a fallen friend. And uh, I always really appreciate it on that level. And I completely agree with you on, on that bridge because uh, it, it j just that kind of change in tempo right into the bridge. It just it makes that song really special. And out of we, we talked about kind of the hidden cuts. What do you do for money, honey? Giving the dog a bone. I put shake uh, have a drink on me as probably my favorite out of those three. Gonna roll around, gonna hit the ground, take another swing. You know, like j just awesome. Yeah. Right? Uh, and a little That's bit about uh, Malcolm was known uh, to get into some bar fights too, so maybe take another swing. Uh, maybe alludes to that just a little bit because yeah, Malcolm, uh, you know, he got a little rowdy when he got drunk. Yeah. Did you ever hear the story about when he beat up Geezer Butler? I did. Yeah. <laughs> Something else. That's awesome. You can't make this stuff up. No. Uh, we're going into another, like, a high-tempo uh, rocker here with song number four on side two, Shake a Leg. Uh, again, really uh, showcasing uh, Brian Johnson in his younger days. He could really hit that upper register uh, in his voice and really nails it in Shake a Leg. I don't know if he could do it today, uh, you know, being that much older, but uh, back in 1980, uh, Shake a Leg, uh, another classic ACDC riff. Yeah, I, this was one of those ones when, when I was a kid that I probably would have been off other people's cassette best of songs, but it wasn't, wouldn't have been off mine. I love this tune. I, I, uh, um, I love the speed of it. You know, is it, I mean, I'd have to think about this a little bit, but is it not the fastest song on the record? Uh, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yep, you, you think of the next one probably would have to be Shoot to Thrill. So, yeah, I would think so. It has that nice ascending uh, kind of register in the guitar, right? And then back down, right? So It sounds like a song that, you know, they, it, 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 it's almost like it could have been a Led Zeppelin cover. Like, it's just kind of got that sort of, a, I, I kind of feel like it's got a Led Zeppelin feel to it. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, I could see that. You know, like, and, and, uh, um, it's, it's, um, it's one of those tunes that, um, just kind of falls under the radar because when you're dealing with a, an album, that's got this many, just amazing songs on it, nobody ever talks about it, but yet if it was on almost any other record, it would be like the third best song on the record. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, just, 
just fantastic. Just, yeah. I don't know. I, I love it. It's, uh, I don't love it as much as I love money, honey, giving the dog a bone or have a drink on me, but it would be, it would be kind of like maybe just a little bit below that. This would be like an A minus for me. Yep, uh, I would put a little closer to A just, just for myself. I love Shake a Leg. And that was originally going to be the end of the album. They had nine songs, and the record company uh, went to the band and said they should have, like, one more song. So uh, Angus and Malcolm knocked this one out in about 15 minutes, and it's still one of my favorite on the album. It was the last single, and it's Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, just one of those classic Malcolm lines that got stuck in his head that they built a whole song around. And like I said, uh, you know, wrote it in 15 minutes, and to me, it's an all-time classic. Big lips, or <clears throat> big licks, skin flicks, tricky dicks are my chemistry. <laughs> Who comes up with this stuff? <laughs> you know, that's. I had to look at that. I actually had to read that off. I just Googled it because this is one of those songs on the album where I have to admit, Corey, to be honest with you, um, he swings it so fast that sometimes I don't even know what the hell he's saying. Like, you know how sometimes you'll, you'll sing a song for years thinking the lyrics were something else, and then you'll read them on paper and go, wait a minute, that's not how I've been doing it. <laughs> I, I found that this song had several of those sort of like little kind of lines where uh, it's like some um, – there's songs for years I've sung them a, a different way than 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 what they I mean they're one more time by Street Heart. I I sang it with my own lyrics for like 25 years before I realized that I had it wrong. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's kind of hard to understand Brian in some of the in some of the uh, the verbiage, mm -hmm. but uh, the the you can't the passion and just the excitement of that tune um, is just great. Well, and over that kind of intro part, uh, Mutt Lang just told him in the studio, just say something. I don't even care what it is. And so he just started just kind of riffing about all you middlemen throw away your fancy clothes. And then at one point, if you listen carefully, he lights up a cigarette and takes a pull from it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that all made the track. And uh, it, it all just kind of works for me. Rock and rolling, nose pollution. To me, a, a perfect way to end uh, Back in Black. Still one of the greatest albums of all time, one of the uh, best-selling albums of all time. Actually, I believe it is the best-selling album by a band of all time. Of course, Michael Jackson's Thriller uh, in a class above, but ACDC right up there. Uh, Kelly, did you have any final thoughts on Back in Black? Well, uh, are we going to briefly talk about rock and rolling noise pollution? Yes, of course. That's isn't that the, isn't that the last one? That, that, um, that's what I was alluding to a couple of minutes ago. Right. Yeah. Um, before I give my final thoughts on Back in Black, rock and rolling noise pollution is kind of one of those tunes that it 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 feels like there's part of me that that kind of almost says. It doesn't really belong on this album. And then there's another part of me that says, no, 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 no. It totally belongs on this album. It's so different. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's so different than anything else that's that's on this record. It's slower, it's a little bit more methodical, it's um uh very, very simple. Like it's probably I would say the bluesiest song on the record would you not agree with that oh absolutely and, and like i said uh, when i introed this song i think it was just because they wrote it so fast because yeah. the record company said give us one more for an even 10. 15 minutes yeah 15, 15 minutes. minutes yeah it's like Janie lane writing cherry pie exactly yeah they, they want a single i'll give them a single and it yeah. becomes like their biggest song <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I liked it. It's uh, not my favorite. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it would be it would be my second least favorite song on on the album, but you know it's a good album when your second least favorite song you'd still give an A minus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like so, no, I I uh, rock and roll ain't gonna die. It's just. It doesn't get any more straightforward than that. And as long as ACDC's around, I don't think rock and roll will ever die. Oh, no, you're right. All right, Kelly, final thoughts. ACDC, back in black. Well, I, I've said it before. I, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, let's put it this way. You asked me, well, what album do you want to start with? If you want to tackle one, what, what do you want to start with? And I said, well, my favorite album of all time, back in black. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a favorite album, it's Back in Black, and then I have about 60 others that are like um, my second favorite. But I don't have, there's only one favorite, and that's this one. I think it is so good. Um, it's, it's almost hard to believe that a song that's the number two selling album of all time, number four in the United States, but number, five, number two in the world, could be underrated. But I don't know how it could ever be overrated. I mean, it's so good that I can't say enough good things about it. The worst song, in my opinion, is still good. <laughs> and I, I, you just, you don't see that anymore. I mean, you know, that, that you know, let me put my love into you song. Well, if it was on any other record, it would still be, it would be, it would be fine. But compared to the other songs on the album, it's not as good. But then you kind of say to yourself, yeah, but it's still really good. Um, it's like a, it's like an all-star team. It's like the Toronto Blue Jays in the in the early '90s. You know, every every single position on the field, you've got an all-star caliber player there. Yep. yep. And, it, and it's like from track. You know, I used to think, and then I love Highway to Hell. Don't get me wrong. But I used to think that I liked them both close to being the same but when you go track by track and you go okay well let's do one versus one two versus two three versus three four versus four i realized that no they're not they're highway to hell is not as good i love it but aside from maybe the number one song highway to hell which i might give like a whisper of an edge over hell's bells and what does that say yeah i don't know if i going down the track list I don't think that there was an ACDC song on Back in Black uh, that I didn't like other than the track five that let me put my love in. I mean, every Back in Black was the, my favorite on every other track on the whole on the whole album. Um, whatever uh, uh, Shot Down in Flames went against, was that You Shook Me All Night Long? That might have been the other one, but what, 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 I didn't think I could like it. find somebody that could like you know that would be objective and say yeah i know it's better okay well, what is it 
because I've done that for 20 some years and nobody's been able to come up with a better one, frankly. You know, what? I, I really loved your Toronto uh, Blue Jays from the early '90s comparison. Uh, if that's the case, then let me put my loving to you is the Candy Maldonado of the album. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> and it, it's such a miracle that this album was so huge because the highest uh, uh, charting single was uh, reached number thirty-five on the Billboard Hot One Hundred, and that was "You Shook Me All Night Long." Like there wasn't a, a massive number one hit on this album. Uh, it, it, still, it, but have they ever had one? No, yeah, you're right. Like I, I don't even know if they've ever had a song hit the top ten, uh, for that matter. No, I don't think they have. But it just goes to show you, like what Gene Simmons has said all, all, all these years. If you have a, a horse race, and you let all the horses out of the out of the gate at the same time, and you wanted to take a snapshot, twenty five feet after they open up the the gate, any one of the horses could be in first place. You know. That doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. but let it run around the track three or four times, and then you're going to find out which the best horse is. And these guys, you know, they don't write hits. They, they have no interest in doing that. That's not who their audience is. That's not who they are. And yet they are the, even bigger than Metallica, bigger than John Bon Jovi, you know, bigger than I would argue at this point, I never thought I'd ever say this, but I think we're there now, bigger than the Rolling Stones. There is not a bigger rock and roll band on the planet that could put 25 stadium shows on at nine in the morning and all 25 stadium shows are sold out by noon. Like they, they are the biggest rock and roll band probably in the world. And, and without any hits, that's almost incomprehensible when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Here's an interesting thing, though. They don't. They never had many hits, but there's not too many hard rock bands in this genre that get played on the radio more than they do. So just because they weren't hits way back in 1980, they're playing all those songs on the radio now in 2020. It's it's kind of it's just surreal. It is. And you can turn on the wolf and hear have a drink on me uh, on a Sunday afternoon, right? Like they're still playing cuts off of back and black. Uh, Kelly, I had an absolute blast uh, talking to you here today about music. Uh, you got to come back uh, to, to talk about Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Kiss, all the classics. But if you're talking to Bret Hart and he ever wants to come on and talk about the Beatles, let him know I've always got a seat here for him. <laughs> Well, we'll do that. We'll have fun. We'll do this again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. On behalf of Kelly Rempel, the Silver Fox, my name is Corey Mercer. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Power of Positive Geeking. Howdy, folks. It's good old Hillbilly Scribs here, and I'd like to invite you to join me every single Monday morning here on the Feedin' the Monster podcast feed for my show, The Hootin' Holler. And this is about a 10 to 15 minute variety show where, you know, I do my darndest to help all of you good folks get your week started off with a smile and a chuckle. So please join us and have a glorious week.